Sales Tuners, Episode 25, Sam McKenna, Senior Director of Sales at On24. I always associated sales as, as kind of that dirty word, that job that, you know, no one really wants to do and you know, kind of even cringe when you say it, but man, was I wrong. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time, it's time, it's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Leonardo da Vinci, who said, It's had long since come to my attention that people of accomplishment rarely sit back and let things happen to them. They went out and happened to things. It's really hard to believe that we have already made it to episode 25. Thank you all so much for the support and helping grow this show. Your emails, iTunes reviews, and just your willingness to tell your colleagues about the show is greatly appreciated. A quick reminder, next week I will be in Atlanta for Sales Lofts Rainmaker 17. If you're going to be there, please shoot me a note. I definitely want to make sure we connect. Today, I'm joined by Sam McKenna. Senior Director of Sales at On24, a webinar-based marketing solution for demand generation and customer engagement. At her previous firm, she holds every sales record to mention, including largest contract signed, highest above quota percentage in one year, largest multi-year deal, and highest number of contracts signed in one year. And when it comes to records and exceeding numbers, well, her love of foreign cars and road rally experience has led to more than 35 speeding tickets. And that's just in the United States. Before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors. A big thanks goes out to the team at Okta for helping make this podcast possible. We all know that a better sales process creates a better buying experience, and Octave is transforming the way sales documents are created, distributed, and tracked. Check out a demo at Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com. All right. Make sure you stick around until the end, where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salesoonerscom slash 25. But now, let's get to the conversation where Sam made me incredibly jealous after learning she was a contestant on Nickelodeon's Legends of the Hidden Temple. Yes, I was. So um, I grew up in Orlando after moving to the States. I was in D.C. for a little while and then moved to Orlando until I graduated college. And so Nickelodeon uh, shot a lot of their TV shows down there. And it was actually pretty standard for kids who grew up in Orlando to be on their TV shows. Um, so I was on Legends of the Hidden Temple with an orange iguana, and I believe they actually just made a movie out of it, uh, which is probably in theaters right now. Um, but unfortunately, it did not do so well. I uh, came out last, uh, in fact, but I did get a lifetime supply of Hershey's syrup for all the sweet shoots out there. So, but you got to climb the aggro crag. I sure did, which was great. And I did the ropes course and I fell in the water and I lost. <laughs> that is so great. I, I am now uh, completely envious of you because I watched that show as a kid and Double Dare and all that. So that is fascinating. Great, great experience for sure. Nice. Now, Sam, you know, in this show, we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to your success. But but I want to start where we are today. So how does someone decide to buy from you today? And, and what is On24? Yeah, great question. Um, so On24 is a leading platform for basically marketing webinars. So I think everybody's 
pretty familiar with, you know, uh, generic screen sharing platforms like let's say a WebEx or a GoToMeeting. So we're we're kind of like that in terms of content delivery, but we were built specifically for marketers and specifically for a few presenters out to wider audiences. Um, there's an incredible amount of things that we do to actually make us um, get more people into your webcast, keep them in longer, and then the analytics are so data-driven that it really helps shorten sales cycles and allow you to target the right people first. Um, totally SaaS-based, we're a San Francisco shop and um, we've been around for quite some time now. Um, but yeah, does that give you a good lay, lay ground, groundwork of who we are? Totally does. And so how does someone buy from you? What's that process look like? Yeah, so you know, I, I think for us, a lot of uh, a lot of marketers have used the standards standards and technology of what's already in house, what um, their IT guys buy again, like the WebExes of the world, and um, they're just looking for something better, right? More robust, more reliable, customizable. Um, so typically, after they've used the, their technologies, they look and say, okay, but what was built for us as marketers? Um, so when they come to buy for us, they kind of go through a few of their you know pains and things that they'd like to see be done better. Uh, but then they also lay out a roadmap of where they'd like to go, let's say, in the next 12 or 18 months with their leads and the ROI that they get from them. So we start a, a really consultative conversation there, look to see if there's a fit for us, um, and then they're able to purchase licenses and subscriptions from us um, you know, and start using us right away. Got it. Got it. So we're, we're going to come back to this, I promise. But so take me way back, Sam. How did you get into sales? Great question. Um, so I actually got into sales uh, in an interesting way. Um, I always associated sales as, as kind of that dirty word, that job that you know no one really wants to do, and you know, kind of even cringe when you say it. But man, was I wrong. Um, so I got into sales when I, I had actually met the CEO of a, a local headhunting firm here in Washington D.C. And he said, "I have a great position for you. You should consider it. It's an account manager." Uh, within the sales department. And I said, no, you know, I don't do that. I don't do cold calls. I'm never going to do that. And they said, yeah, yeah, no problem. And after about two years, um, you know, meeting exceeding goals as an account manager, I was promoted into a sales position. And again, you know, there was such a fear of failure. What if I don't hit my number? What if I don't hit my commitments to you? And um, I trepidatiously stuck my toe into sales and I've never looked back. Could not be a better fit for my personality, and um, you know, I've been incredibly lucky to be successful within within this career path. I love that. So um, I, I can't imagine you were completely successful out of the gate. You had to overcome some some challenges early. So, what were some of those things that you that led you to where you uh, you are today? I think you know one of the the things I hate the most is to inconvenience people. So you kind of think about that. Well, you're in sales. You're inconveniencing me all the time because you're calling me out of the blue to try and sell me something. Um, but what was really interesting is uh, one of my mentors gave me great advice and said that you are saving your clients from what they're uh, going through now and giving them way better technology. You're doing them a favor. And it's interesting, when I started to look at it like that and then also started to look at a way that I could do prospecting and outreach um, in a non-traditional way, um, which is actually a lot of social selling and, and relationship and networking, um, I was able to be successful in that way and get around my fear of you know, inconveniencing people because I really was doing them a favor and I was being smart at the way I prospected while also being polite at the same time, which you know doesn't sound like it matches up, but it actually did. Um, so I think that was my biggest hurdle. The second, um, I've worked in enterprise for quite some time and opening up an enterprise account was also one of my biggest challenges. The amount of business units, the amount of um, different people that could say no to me and just kind of getting the courage to keep going throughout those accounts and just, again, being strategic was a, another huge learning hurdle for me. 
So break that down a little bit, Sam. What um, what were some of these non-traditional things? How how were you opening up those accounts? Yeah, so you know, one of the interesting parts that I saw that my first introduction really into social selling was um, I built a great relationship with a chief marketing officer at a top twenty law firm, um, and we built this great relationship. And he said, you know what, you're I want to see you succeed. I have such a great LinkedIn network. Why don't you go through my connections, all like five thousand of them, see if I know anybody that you'd like to sell to, and then just send them an email with my name in the subject line and say that we're friends. And I thought, well, okay. So I actually, I stayed up all night one night doing this. I went through all of his connections. I sent out emails um, throughout the night. And it was amazing how, number one, the subject line, it, it taught me so fast how key that is from a prospecting standpoint. Um, but number two, just referencing a common connection, kind of a, a show me, you know me, as we say it. Um, within that subject line, it was unbelievable in the amount of responses that I got. And what was great, too, is that a lot of people would respond and say, you know, I'm not your right person, but here's who is, or we're not interested, but I know another organization that could be, and here's their information. So I think that was my first introduction to that. That was way back in, like, 2008, I want to say, and it has been invaluable to my success. Yeah, so you've definitely been doing that for a while. Now, you also mentioned that uh, you did it politely. What did, what did you mean by that? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, there's a, a lot of, I think there's team cold call and there's team non-cold call, um, right? So a lot of people who think that the cold call is dead, and I, I used to be on that fence. Um, I do see success with it with our SDRs, but I think also there's something to be said for the, the smart and strategic email, right? So instead of hammering somebody with five and seven and 19 phone calls until you get them on the phone, I think the, the smart email, two or three rounds of those smart emails can net you a greater result. So I think from a polite standpoint, you know, again, looking through, uh, and we actually just did this whole social selling session with my team, but looking through LinkedIn, finding common connections or clients who used to uh, be at, or prospective clients who used to be at current clients, and just mentioning that in your subject line, and then again, mentioning something within the body of the email um, that shows that we actually did our time to do a little research on that individual, I think comes off um, much more polite, and it comes off in a smart fashion, and again, it's it's netting us results um, in, in far greater droves than just cold calling and hoping for the best. Yeah, so it seems like it's the opposite of the numbers game, right? So what kind of success rates are you seeing, or, or I guess, how many accounts are you targeting, and, and what does that open rate look like? Great question. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the great successes that I can give you is we we actually measured this. Um, I think the last time we measured it was actually last January. So it's been about a year. But we looked at the success rate of the first email, second, and third email, and we found a 34. When we tracked this over the course of 30 days, we found a 34% open end response rate. So just the response rate to our emails on the second try. So what's interesting, and, and we talk about this. Um, I talk about this with our sales team and also the the mentees within on 24 is that your email as smart and lovely as it is that first email might get someone's attention right but while they're reading it and deciding whether or not they're going to respond if anything else comes in you know a message from their boss a prospective client something else more important they will instantly be distracted go focus on that email and you are all but forgotten you are forgotten rather um and so what's interesting is that second follow-up email we always do it about two or three days later we do a reply all to that email so it carries the initial chain and then in that, that second email, you know, we'll, we might say, hey, Jim, just following up to see if you got my below message. Thanks, Sam. And when we send that email, we find that people think, oh, that's right. I did want to respond to you or this was interesting. And they don't need as much time to read that initial email because they've already, their memory is already jogged. So they'll go ahead and reply. 
And that's where we get such a high success rate from that second email. So that second email is key. And then also doing it two or three days later, that, that you know, close time bracket is really important. Now, are you still doing cold calls as well? Or is it just that smart email outreach? Yeah, so, uh, you know, for, in my position um, as our, our leader of uh, Enterprise Southeast, I don't personally do cold calls unless there's a, a really strong connection or a high-level contact that I can really make an impact with. Um, our SDRs are still using cold calls as part of their tactics, um, you know, as part of their, their cadence and their touch points and everything, and we do find success there. I think with the narrower amount of time that our AEs have between building proposals and demoing, we want to look for those super sharp and smart ways uh, to prospect, and that's where they go about doing the email campaigns. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, some of our most successful sales reps here can't tell you the last time they picked up a phone call, a phone to make a call, and, and really the reason for that is because they, they use social selling, and they're just smart and, you know, maybe even a tad bit aggressive with their messaging. Yeah, I love that. Now, Sam, you've, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, you have crushed every record, you know, you you hold so many records at your previous firms. How do you sustain that high performance and that high level of success year after year without getting burnt out? Great question also. Um, you know, so I've I, I read a lot of uh, articles lately that, that kind of talk about what the eight and nine hour workday looks like, you know, and how um, we're actually rather inefficient sometimes at the office. Um, when we're in the office, we get distracted a lot. We go to lunch, we chat about our weekends, things like that. Um, one of the things that I find is actually working remotely has been a, a godsend for me. So I work remotely in my Washington, D.C. office, and um, I'm so focused, undistracted throughout the day. Um, you know, I can forget my commute because it's, you know, a story in my house. Um, and it allows me to just really get a lot done during the day, which are my basic job functions. And then I can apply the extra time that I have to other projects, whether it's being strategic for my team or doing something greater for our organization, um, for culture, or mentorship, things like that. Um, but I think what's, what's great for me in terms of being able to continue to go and go and go is it's just become part of my brand. It's um, what I want to be associated with, right? That I'm always going to go above and beyond, that I'll always be able to offer assistance to, you know, our new hires and things like that. Um, and that's that's what satisfies me, right? It's so motivating not only to see our team hit our numbers, um, it makes me want to get out of bed early the next day and stay late the next day in the office, um, but also knowing that you're helping with the growth and the mentorship of individuals to be successful in our organization. Um, that's so motivating. I mean, I, I don't even know the word burnt out because I'm so satisfied by that every day. So uh, talk to me about coaching then. How have you uh, benefited from coaching and how do you coach your team today? Yeah, I think um, benefited from coaching. I've had some great um, mentors in my life, right? And I and I, I have them now. You know, I think they're they're great for actually going with sticky situations, or you know, even with going to to them and saying, here's here's where we are in this in a sales process, or here's where we are with a hiring plan, and here's what I'm going to do. What do you think of that? Um, I'm a firm believer, and, and again, just even said this on our call today that um, you know, two heads are just better than one. And I think I always like to solicit for more information to say, you know, have I thought through everything? Is there anything I'm missing or haven't considered as an angle? Um, that also helps us be really thorough the first time around, right? So we're not speaking to clients or demoing and kind of winging it. We're being really smart and tactical about the way that we go in um, to working with our clients or even internal situations. Um, from a coaching standpoint, I, I think the most important thing for a sales rep to be um, you know, one of the most important things anyway is, um, is just to be consultative, right? So you, 
we always say this too, you want to buy from people that you like, right? So if you can learn how to have a conversation with somebody, you know, sales is not a pitch. It really isn't. It's a conversation. It's asking questions. It's understanding, you know, what they want to do, how they're measured for success, what their goals are, what their pain points are, you know, evaluating that 15 or 20 minutes during a discovery call and then saying, you know, do I think I can help this person or not? And sometimes you just can't. Being honest about that also builds value and trust in you with those prospective clients and they might even recommend you in the future. But um, you know, coaching in terms of how to be consultative, how to have a conversation. Um, and then also, you know, when we actually do talk about our, our sales strategy, I find that so many people focus on the, the features of technology. I hear it all day and all night. You can customize this, we have logos for that. You know, that's great. But at the end of the day, the question you always want to ask when you talk about something is why does this person care? Why does this person care that you can do this or that we have that feature, right? So it always comes back to the benefit. And that's what I find, um, again, sets our, our sales force apart, you know, aside from being tenacious and aggressive and organized and all of that stuff. It's how do you actually communicate with your client in the end? Once you've got them, that's great. Anybody can get them. But how do you present yourself and how does that conversation, not that pitch, go? So I want to I kind of unpack that a little bit more. So it, it, it leads to a couple different things. So you said sales isn't a pitch, it's a conversation. I get that. But so how are you uh, opening up or not opening up? How are you getting your prospect to truly get to the pains that they have in that conversation flow? Yeah, great question. Um, so I, I think it's always interesting to hear how somebody opens up a discovery call, right? And we've heard the best and, and the worst things. Um, for me, the way that I've always taught our, our teams to open up a discovery call is to say, um, after your standard introductions, is just to say, so I could tell you a million things about our technology, but I'd love to understand a little bit about your role and then how you work, let's say, with Entrepreneur with webinars right now. What does that landscape look like? What's great? What's not so great? You know, fill me in a little bit on that. And it's amazing how a client will then tell you a story, right? They'll start from, you're just opening up the floodgates for them to tell you exactly what goes on internally. I think I've maybe had that one or two times go awry where they say, well, I don't really want to tell you about me, tell me about you. And then you're like, oh, dang it. Um, because then, you know, you're just kind of fitting, feeling like you're putting a square peg in a round hole because you have no idea what they need. Um, but with that one question, I find that people then become storytellers, right? So they give you information about, um, you know, how many events they run, what they're using now, who's responsible for these things. And it allows you to then engage more questions, right? So how do you send out email invitations for webcasts? What CRM and email marketing platform do you use? What do you do with the analytics afterwards? Um, I think that if you can go in that direction, and at least for the first 20 minutes of that discovery call, really just ask questions and listen, you'll be in far better shape than the reverse. It, you know, and I will say that I've been pitched on a million products, right? And I get on the phone and they start to talk to me about, you know, God knows what, IT analytics, which, hey, I'm not in IT, it doesn't really matter to me. Sure. Who is not knowing anything about me? Um, so I, I think if you can ask questions in a little bit better format and again, really listen, you can either actually help me or save me time and say, you know what, I guess that's not, that's not actually what we do, but here's a great recommendation and all the best. Yeah. You've kind of already got, you, you've done the prospecting, you've done the discovery with me. Uh, you obviously couldn't have hit all these numbers that you have without being able to close. What, what is objection handling and, and the closing, uh, look like for you? Yeah. So I think um, from an objection handling standpoint, I find that, 
some objections come out because they just want to do things they've always done it, the, the way they've always done it, um, or they find that there's, uh, you know, there's a, a place that they want to get to, but they're not really articulating that. Um, so we have, you know, we have some people, like an, a great objection for ON24 will be, um, you know, well, we, we don't want to pay for dial-in teleconferencing numbers. Um, you know, we just don't want to pay for that anymore. And, you know, this other company gives it to us for free and everybody can dial in. So you, you say, well, you know, what, what's the real issue there, right? And the real issue always comes down to cost. And so you can re-educate them about how you can actually have it for free and you don't even need to dial in. And all the audio can actually stream out over your computer speakers, which quite frankly is how a modern professional wants to consume their content these days. And I think when you look at objections too, with the same example in mind, you can look at, um, give them, you know, everyday examples that really um, connects them with what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. So with that kind of audio streaming example, what we'll say is, imagine you went to YouTube to watch a video, and instead of the audio playing, an 800 number popped up and had you call an 800 number to listen to the audio on your phone and then to watch the video online. I mean, you would think it's, you know, 1995, um, if we even did that in 1995. Um, but it, it's just not monitored anymore, right? So you just kind of get them to think a little bit differently, think about best practices, and see that we can get them to their end goal um, and actually in a, in a better way. So I think you've already kind of started to allude to this, but what's what have you done or, or what have you seen done that uh, typically causes a rep to lose control of that sales process? Great question. Um, so I think the first thing is, again, getting, getting buried in features. Um, and and just thinking about features and putting it out there and not asking questions. It's, it's interesting too, I find that, um, I think the sales process is a lot like dating and relationships, right? So if you don't ask enough questions, you're not really learning about the person opposite your, your table there, and you're not able to gauge where they are kind of in that buying cycle or that relationship cycle, if you will. So I think that that's one thing where we see um, a lot of people lose control of the deal is they just talk about uh, features, 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 and then um, then they get happy ears because someone says, well, this all sounds good and, you know, we'll meet together and we'll get back to you soon. And so they think, oh, we're going to get a deal. I'm going to go ahead and forecast this and I'm not going to focus on other deals because I already think I have one in the bank. Um, I think the other thing that tends to, you know, kill deals and, and make them for us on our side is just overall sense of urgency. Um, I think, you know, when you look at the speed of response rates, right, even think about your own examples when you email customer service for something and you maybe have to follow up and then, you know, wait another three days before they respond to you. Can you imagine if you had someone that not only responded to you quickly in the courting process, but then was that same exact way with that same sense of urgency after signature. Um, that's one of the ways that I think we set ourselves apart, right, and we, we keep control of the deal because we're fast, we're communicative, uh, we make sure that the customer knows that they're important to us no matter the size of the deal. Whether it's $100,000 or $10,000, you're just as important to us. I totally get the sense of urgency from the sales person side, but how do you kind of like get the sense of urgency on the prospect side? Yeah, great question. Again, I think it's all about the right questions, right? So I'll give you a fantastic example. We're, um, we're working on a large deal right now um, with a shipping company, we'll say that. And the, all the buying signs are there, everything to move forward is there. Um, but without asking one question, when would your first webinar with us be? Um, and then saying, well, we actually want to do a pilot with you first. We won't be able to do that until March 31st. And then after that, we'll be able to consider a larger agreement. Without asking that question and getting that information, um, we, we would think that this is a deal that we might even sign in February versus thinking that this will actually be a large Q2 deal. 
So I think that that's one piece is just understanding where they are so you understand where they also fit within your forecasting model and then you could focus on, on you know, your quicker closer deals. And then I think from a sense of urgency standpoint too, um, it's showing the cost of inaction, right? So the longer you delay and stay with your existing technology versus move to something more robust, how much is that costing you? You know, and burnt leads and burnt um, ROI in terms of revenue that's actually coming in the door because you were able to target the right people first. Um, I think the final thing that I would say in terms of sense of urgency is uh, we do have a, a, a set of prospective clients that will say, well, you know, we've never done webinars before, and before we go, you know, with the Ferrari of webinars, um, we like to go with something inexpensive and just see how it goes, right, or just do one and see how it goes. And just being able to, again, articulate what the cost of that's going to be, you know, how um, your program isn't going to be successful if you use the wrong tool for the, the job. Things like that, that will gear their sense of urgency, kind of make them see that we are the right choice now and get them to move faster. So you've been doing enterprise sales now for a while, Sam. What, do you, what has you seen as the biggest difference between, I guess, SMB, SME, and now enterprise as, you, as the selling cycle goes? I, I think the, the biggest challenge first is finding your decision maker um, and then the, the sales cycle, right? So I, I think the, the things that we don't see um, at all or, or really very often within mid-market or within SMB is procurement. And that's always a surprise to Rapsi, even however long they've done it, um, you know, we get to the end game and all thumbs are, are up and excited. Uh, and then we find out that we have to talk to procurement and that procurement takes six weeks and that they've used us before and maybe have gotten a better price and you know, here we go down a whole rabbit hole of things. Um, so I think that that's one thing that really extends our sales cycle. Um, the other thing that we see is a, a huge difference between enterprise and mid-market and SMB is that there are so many other business units that could be involved, right? We might even get to the end game with one business unit uh, only to find out that we have maybe an SVP of another bigger business unit instead of a VP of our business unit who's also looking at technologies and who might say, we have something for free, why don't you use this? And then, you know, it's hard to compete with free. Um, so there are a lot of stakeholders, a lot of, um, you know, uh, hoops to jump through in order to get to the end game. Um, I think it's also interesting, though, because if you are a, a smart and resourceful sales rep, you can also use those multiple business units to your advantage to build larger deals. Right? The sales cycle will certainly be longer, uh, but in the end, you could end up with a, a great enterprise agreement or even a global enterprise agreement uh, by looping other people in and, and really hitting a home run for the company. So I guess a two-part question there. How do you balance that, uh, you know, leveraging the other business units, trying to grow the deal with getting it done? But then also, like, how, how do you even map the organization and know who reports to who and, and that kind of deal? Million dollar question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you know. I, I think for starters, um, how how you balance that is it's all about pipeline. At the end of the day, it is all about pipeline. So I want our our reps and our team should be you know juggling a, a few smaller deals that allow them to get to their number and their quotas on a monthly basis, uh, while having you know two or three larger immense deals, strategic deals that they're also you know kind of holding up in the air. And they were tactfully, tact, tactfully working together. Uh, tactfully, I should say. And um, it, I think when you have that, right? When you have that balance, you have little pieces of deals that will will kind of plug those holes for you and hit your quota while you're working on these bigger pipeline initiatives. And I think you can be nothing but successful. Uh, so I think there's the, the balance there, right? It's not just about closing a moderate size deal with a large organization. It's you know how do we how do we close um, smaller deals across the board, but then build these larger deals as well. 
And I would say one of the things we find that works really successfully for us is pilot programs. Um, sometimes you see, you know, you see a huge uh, cost to go a global enterprise deal with On24, and you think, well, I just wonder if it's going to be successful. Um, and we'll certainly do pilots with with clients, and um, we find a great conversion rate with those client with those pilots because. You know, it's a great way for us to show what we're made of, for um, a team to get the visuals of our technology and really experience our, our different level of service. Um, so that's also been something significantly um, helpful to us and, and smaller in deal size, right, while we aim for a larger deal down the road. This may not be completely germane to the question or to the conversation, but do you incentivize your reps differently to do those pilots versus to get the full deal? I think um, what, what's really interesting is we we incentivize based on a few different metrics, um, and it's you know it's what we're after. So we look at multi-year deals. We look at um, the scope of the deal. If you pull in you know global um, global participants, you know things like that. Um, and we also look at um, sales cycle, right? So how how does the deal move through? How did you build it? Um, but one of the biggest things for us, and really for any organization, is uh, predictable revenue. Want to understand where revenue is coming from, um, and you know if we can count on it for two or three years or four or five years, etc. Um, so that that's a great way to incentivize the reps, and I think to drive the behaviors that we're looking for. I'm going to flip the script on you a little bit, Sam, and you know, so you, I, you clearly have been amazingly successful. What about the other side of this? Is there a, a time in your career where it just didn't go well for you, and you just failed? Yeah, great question. So I think, um, and I think I have a, a pretty pretty solid answer for you here. Um, there was a, a deal that I was working on um, early in my career here, in fact, at On24, and um, I had all the right players, I had all the right buy-in. Um, you know, I, I as far as I was concerned, we were at the end game. And what I didn't anticipate was, um, with our, especially with our, our market downturn, was our um, our head of that organization said no more spending until the, the second, the next fiscal year. Um, that practically blew my shot at President's Club, and it was a really tough lesson to learn because I just hadn't asked the right questions, and it was an expensive lesson to learn. Right, so it was a deal we ultimately lost. Um, the incumbent that was already in house and inexpensive stayed. Um, and it was just, it was important for me to see that, you know, instead of just thinking, like relying on the enthusiasm of the clients, even at the high level that I had, that I really hadn't asked the right question of who is the ultimate decision maker? Who is going to sign up on this agreement? Who still has the power to say no that I haven't talked to? Um, and that was, that was a really tough lesson to learn, at least from a sales perspective. Yeah, that's, that's real stuff. I, I've, done that myself and uh not fun <laughs> no kidding <laughs> for a little while <laughs> yeah well sam we're gonna take a quick break and we come back it's gonna be time for the money round so you don't go away and sales sooners you don't go away either we'll be right back sales sooners octave has built a sales productivity platform that streamlines the workflow for creating and managing your sales documents everything from presentations and quotes to all of your proposals and contracts. They can pull data from your CRM, CPQ, and ERP systems, saving you time and accelerating each sales opportunity. Octave has been around since 2010 and now serves more than 400 organizations. I'm talking global enterprises, guys, like GE and Siemens, national brands like Angie's List and FedEx Office, and even industry innovators like Double Dutch and Lindemood Bell. You've got to check them out. Go to Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com to learn more. And hey, during your demo, be sure to tell them you heard about them on the Sales Tuners podcast. We 
are back and it's time for the money round. Sam, are you ready for the money round? Let's do it, Jim. Here we go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Uh, tenacity and organization without a shadow of a doubt. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you spend the next 30 days doing? Learning everything about the benefits of our company and what made our top three salespeople successful last year. I like that. Two-part question here. Which phrase describes you best and why I love to win or I hate to lose? <laughs> I love to win um, because I only want win in my rhetoric, not the word lose. Okay. All right. Uh, Sam, what's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? Oh, great question. Um, you know, I've actually, uh, I would say it's Lean In. I think it has great tips and tactics, even if it's a little controversial. I love Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. Sales Sooners, if you'd like to check out Sam's recommendation of Lean In for free, head on over to salessooners.com slash book. There you can sign up for a 30-day free trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salessooners.com slash book. Sam, what's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Never give up. Uh, I think we can ride on the heels of the Super Bowl win and the comeback uh, at the end. And I, I would say always play until the very end of the game. Do not give up. Don't feel defeated. Don't feel like you can't pick yourself back up and hit your quota. Never give up. Be tenacious and, and you know be successful by never giving up. Very timely. I love that. I'm going to get you out of here on this one. How could someone find you or connect with you today uh, if they wanted to? on LinkedIn. Follow me on Twitter as well. Um, I'm accessible in both places and pretty active and uh, always looking forward to new connections. Sam, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jim. After recording this episode, I became an even bigger fan of Sam when I found out she shared my love for the Kentucky Wildcats. So... With March Madness right around the corner, I want to give a big shout out to the Big Blue Nation. Let's hang banner number nine, boys. All right, here are my top takeaways. Number one, be polite. Prospects are more than just a number on a sales chart. He or she is a person with a whole life outside the office just like your own. Remembering that in meetings, phone calls, and email outreach can make all the difference when it comes down to cultivating that relationship and ultimately making the sale. Number two, get prospects to become storytellers. Sales is not a pitch. It's a conversation. How can you structure your questioning to get a prospect comfortable enough to just open up and tell you a story? Sure, you could tell them a million things about your solution, but what does their world really look like? And number three, show the cost of inaction. Sometimes it's not about what they think they have. It's about what they could achieve. Showing your prospects the cost of that inaction can oftentimes be more effective than anything else. How much is it costing them to maintain status quo? How can your product or service make their life easier? How could your offering keep them from being embarrassed in their next meeting with their boss? That's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you have questions you'd like me to ask our guests, please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I respond to everyone that I get. Be sure to sign up for our email list where we send out expanded content and previews of upcoming guests. All right. I hope to see you next week in Atlanta. Until then, let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Hey!